Chapter 27 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. Sufferings and Exploits of the Common People. From this time forward, the character of the war in the North decidedly changed. The policy of Washington was not to engage in battles in which he had much to lose in case of defeat, and not very much to gain if victory crowned his efforts. Of course, he was bitterly criticized by many of the people who wished to see him sweep the enemy into the sea, and so forever free the colonies from the yoke that was so galling them. But Washington, who was as well aware of the strength of the British as he was of the weakness of his followers, was not to be swerved from his purpose, which, as we know, was to tire out or wear out the redcoats rather than to conquer on the field. The poverty of the little nation, the lack of men and equipment as well as of means, made him see readily that his own plan was the best, and so, uncomplainingly and patiently, he bore the bitter attacks of those who at heart were his friends, as well as those who were his open and more pronounced foes. At this time, a series of reverses in the South also tended to discourage the struggling patriots. Today, we can understand these apparent defeats in the South all aided in securing the final victory in the war. But the consideration of these events we must leave to another chapter. While the opposing armies in the North apparently were doing little more than watch each other, both, in a sense, being on the defensive and fearful of the moves of an enemy that they had been taught to respect, the scattered people of the region were those who now were compelled to endure the hardships and sufferings that were almost beyond our comprehension today. Homes were invaded, houses were burned, possessions were seized, outrages were committed that were terrible beyond compare. Families were divided, brothers oft-times taking opposite sides in the struggle, and it frequently became literally true that a man's foes were they of his own household. Neighbors who had been friends for years were now arrayed against one another, and the most intense and bitter hatred felt by the Whigs was first against the Tories, then against the Hessians or Dutch butchers, and last of all against the Redcoats. As an indication of the state of feeling against the Tories, the following extract from a patriotic newspaper published in June, 1779, will plainly serve. Quote, Rouse America! Your danger is great, great from a quarter where you least expect it. The Tories will yet be the ruin of you. Tis high time they were separated from among you. They are now busily engaged in undermining your liberties. They have a thousand ways of doing it, and they will make use of them all. Who were the occasions of this war? The Tories. Who persuaded the tyrant of Britain to prosecute it in a manner before unknown to civilized nations? and shocking even to the barbarians, the Tories. Who prevailed on the savages of the wilderness to join the standard of the enemy, the Tories? Who have assisted the Indians in taking the scalp from the aged matron, the blooming fair one, the helpless infant, and the dying hero, the Tories? Who advised and who assisted in the burning of your towns, ravaging of your country, and violating the chastity of your women, 
the Tories. Who are the occasion that thousands of you now mourn the loss of your dearest connections, the Tories? Who have always counteracted the endeavors of Congress to secure the liberties of this country, the Tories? Who refused their money when as good as specie, though stamped with the image of his most sacred majesty, the Tories? Who continue to refuse it, the Tories? Who propagate lies among us to discourage the Whigs? The Tories. Who corrupt the minds of the good people of these states by every species of insidious counsel? The Tories. Who hold a traitorous correspondence with the enemy? The Tories. Who daily send them intelligence? The Tories. Who take the oaths of allegiance to the states one day and break them the next? The Tories. Who prevent your battalions from being filled? The Tories. Who dissuade men from entering the army? The Tories. Who persuade those who have enlisted to desert? The Tories. Who harbor those who do desert? The Tories. In short, who wish to see us conquered? To see us slaves? To see us hewers of wood and drawers of water? the Tories. Unquote. The intense bitterness, which increased as the struggle continued, much of any feeling of charity for the honesty of mind of those who differed in their preference was forgotten, and as the months slowly passed, the hatred became still more bitter. In New York, there was a company of Tories known as the Board of Associated Loyalists, and at the head of this board was William Franklin, the last royal governor of New Jersey, and the son of Benjamin Franklin himself. These men were constantly plotting against their former neighbors, and sending forth expeditions to plunder when they learned from their spies, whom they had sent out in all the surrounding region, that the men were not at home. As was but natural now, the brunt of this fell upon the patriots of the nearby regions, and with the exception of South Carolina, no part of our land suffered as did New Jersey and the shore of Connecticut. Small parties would be sent from New York, and, sometimes meeting their friends by appointment, would burn little hamlets, drive away cattle, seize whatever property they cared to take, and then go back to their refuge in the city to set forth soon on another similar errand. Not always were they successful, and some of the most bloody and stubborn contests of the entire war of the Revolution were those that took place between little companies of patriots and the band of invading Tories or Redcoats. July 4, 1779, the detested Tryon with a force of 2,600 men, which had been carried up the Sound by the Camellia and Scorpion, two of the British ships of war, and by 48 tenders and transports, entered New Haven Bay, and to counteract the sentiments aroused among the patriots by the celebration of the day they had been having, caused a proclamation to be scattered among the people of the region. It would seem as if proclamations had already been sufficiently tested, but Tryon, undeterred, now sent forth another, in which he mingled threats and promises in such a manner as might well have confused even the best of his friends. Without waiting, however, for his pompous words to take effect, early on the following morning forces were landed, and prepared to march on the town. The hardy Minutemen were not idle, meanwhile 
and hastily assembling began to fire at the approaching redcoats and hessians. Although they were few in number, they delayed the invaders, and some of their men and some of their best officers fell, but the oncoming body could not be checked. Many of the frightened people had fled to East Rock, and all through the day watched the movements of the heartless army, and vainly waited for it to depart. Twenty-five or more of the Yale boys joined in the attempt to beat off the Redcoats, and President Daggett of the college was also among the defenders. Their best efforts were in vain, however, and the President would have been killed after he had surrendered, had it not been for one of his own students, a Tory in the ranks of invaders. When Dr. Daggett was asked if he would take up arms again, if he should be released, he replied, I rather think I shall. In his own account of the affair, he declares, quote, I was insulted in the most shocking manner by the ruffian soldiers, many of which came at me with fixed bayonets, and swore they would kill me on the spot. They drove me with the main body a hasty march of five miles or more. They damned me, those that took me because they spared my life. Thus amid a thousand insults, my infernal driver hastened me along faster than my strength would admit in the extreme heat of the day weakened as I was by my wounds and the loss of blood, which at a moderate computation would not be less than one quart. And when I failed, in some degree through faintness, he would strike me on the back with a heavy walking stick, and kick me behind with his foot. At length, by the supporting power of God, I arrived at the green, New Haven. But my life was almost spent, the world around me several times appearing as dark as midnight. I obtained leave of an officer to be carried into the widow Lyman's and laid upon a bed, where I lay the rest of the day and succeeding night in such acute and excruciating pain as I never felt before. Unquote. The little body of men who were striving to protect their homes was not able to beat off the enemy. The town was taken possession of, and for a day and night the brutal soldiers committed such outrages as cannot be described. Only a very few houses escaped them, and these few belonged to well-known and bitter Tories. Not only were houses plundered, but furniture, glass, and valuables of every kind were wantonly smashed. But many of the Tories suffered as did the Whigs. Old men were slain, and even sickness was no protection. In these brutal deeds the Hessians, who could not of course speak English, and were in the war because they had been sent into it, and given permission to plunder, were the worst. But almost as bad were the Tories. Some of the Redcoats were not so bad, but others were exceedingly cruel, and Tryon, perhaps, was the worst of all. It had been their plan to burn the town of New Haven, but the countrymen were assembling so rapidly, and were so filled with rage at what was going on that Tryon, who perhaps had not forgotten the expedition he had previously led to Danbury, decided to withdraw. So on the 7th of July, with his fleet, he set sail to the westward. The Americans had 23 killed and 15 wounded. But the British were not yet satisfied with the damage they had inflicted, and under cover of a heavy fog, landed at Fairfield, where their coming was so unexpected that there was scarcely anyone there to oppose them. Angered by what had occurred at New Haven, and wild with the desire of pillaging, small wonder it is that their coming struck terror into the hearts of the people of the little town. 
At first the few brave men tried with their cannon to make a stand on the village green, but they were soon driven from their position. Then the soldiers were let loose, and a terrible time followed. Entering the houses, it mattered not whether they belonged to Whig or Tory, they seized everything of value. They broke open closets, smashed chests, and tore buckles and rings from the hands of the terrified women and children. To no please would General Tryon listen. Perhaps he could not have stopped the men if he would. At last, having satisfied themselves with plunder, they began to fire the town. Two or three Tories, whose homes were there, served as guides, and pointed out the abodes of the patriots, and as the invaders made their way back to their boats, leaving not much besides smoking ruins of Fairfield behind them, the militia and farmers followed them, firing from behind trees and rocks, and inflicting no slight damage among an enemy who had almost ruined them. But at last the fleet set sail for Long Island, and then in a few days came back across the Sound, and again they destroyed the salt pans, burned vessels, and set fire to houses as they had done before at Fairfield and New Haven. Such wanton cruelty, such brutality of the soldiers, as well as the threats of the British, only made the Connecticut Whigs more determined than ever they had been. If this was the kind of treatment they were likely to receive, then, as one of her heroes said, they would live in poverty, and never would they live, though places were offered them, under the rule of such monsters. Tryon's name was thoroughly detested, for though such deeds as he had done might have been expected from the uncivilized savages, when an Englishman stooped so low he deserved the greater blame. So the Yankee Whigs, instead of being made submissive by Tryon's threats and raids, were only made the more angry and determined. The action of the Yale president and students was a sample of the feeling in that college. At one time a note was sent to one of the college boys, who was suspected of being a Tory, demanding that he deny the charge. In response, he wrote the following note. To the honorable and respectable gentlemen of the committee now residing in Yale College, may it please your honors, finis cum sestula popularum gig, a man without a head has no need of a wig, signed Abiathar Camp. But Abiathar Camp could not withstand the storm he had raised, and soon afterward publicly asked to be forgiven for his offense, and abandoned the Tory side. This growing feeling the British were slow to perceive. They did not understand it, and so they could find no cure. They continued to ridicule the peasants and make fun of their patriotism, which was about the very best means they could have taken to strengthen it. In one of the Tory papers, a writer ridiculed the colonies and their leaders in words which, to us at least, show the feeling he did not understand. Quote, Thirteen is a number peculiarly belonging to the rebels. A party of naval prisoners lately returned from Jersey say that the rations among the rebels are thirteen dried clams per day, that the titular Lord Sterling takes thirteen glasses of grog every morning, has thirteen enormous rum bunches on his nose, and that he always makes thirteen attempts before he can walk, that Mr. Washington has thirteen toes on his feet, the extra ones having grown since the Declaration of Independence, and the same number of teeth on each jaw, that the Sackham Schuyler has a top knot of thirteen stiff hairs which erect themselves on the crown of his head when he grows mad, that old Putnam had thirteen pounds of his posteriors bit off in an encounter with a Connecticut bear, 
"'Twas then he lost the balance of his mind. "'That it takes thirteen paper Congress dollars "'to equal one penny sterling. "'That Polly Wayne, "'Polly was the nickname the British had bestowed upon Anthony Wayne, "'was just thirteen hours in subduing Stony Point "'and as many seconds in leaving it. "'That a well-organized rebel household has thirteen children, "'all of whom expect to be generals "'and members of the high and mighty Congress "'of the thirteen United States.' that Mrs. Washington has a mottled cat, which he calls in a complimentary way Hamilton, with thirteen yellow rings around his tail, and that his flaunting it suggested to the Congress the adoption of the same number of stripes for the rebel flag. Unquote. But scurrilous abuse and ridicule never have won a fight, and then, as ever, they only serve to increase the rage and strengthen the determination of the men who preferred death to servitude. It was in New Jersey, however, that the patriotic families suffered the most at this time. The Jersey Tories had been particularly bitter, and many of them, when their property had been confiscated, had fled to New York, where William Franklin and his board of associated loyalists were only too glad to fan the flames of their hatred and assist them in plundering their former neighbors. As many of the Tories disguised their real feelings and refused to leave their homes, they were of great assistance to their friends the enemy in carrying intelligence of the best times in which to make invasions or when the men were absent and so their possessions would be left unprotected. The result was that bands of Tories, assisted by a few of the regulars from New York City or by detachments of the Greens, the name by which the Tories who enrolled themselves as militia willing to fight for King George were known, would sweep unexpectedly down upon some lonely farmhouse or unprotected hamlet, and drive away cattle, seize whatever valuables they could, and though the patriots of the region would assemble at the alarm and pursue the marauders, firing upon them from behind trees or fences, almost always the invaders would succeed in making their way, frequently with a few prisoners, for which the British always offered a reward, back to the shore and in setting sail for the city. On the shore near Sandy Hook was a little settlement known as Refugee Town, where the fugitive slaves and rascally whites found a landing place and a place of shelter for the regulars and Tories who came down from New York. In addition to the Tories, the Patriots suffered greatly at the hands of the Pine Robbers. These were numerous bands of reckless men who made the Pines of New Jersey their headquarters. It was almost impossible to discover their hiding places, and not safe for any except a large force of men to enter the region. From their strongholds they would set forth, usually in the night time, and attack some household which they had already learned was undefended. Frequently they tortured the women to make them disclose the place where the sock in which the little money the family had was concealed. The villains declared that they were in favor of neither side engaged in the war, but somehow the Whigs suffered more at their hands than did their neighbors. Perhaps this was due to the fact that the pine robbers, after they had hidden away a goodly store in the places of concealment they had dug in the sand hills among the pines, would load their booty some dark night on a swift vessel and sail away for New York, where they found a ready market for their wares. As illustrations of their methods, the following incidents recorded in an early work may be cited. Footnote. Historical Collections of the State of New Jersey by Barbara and Howe. End footnote. 
Quote, one of the leaders of one of the worst of these gangs was a blacksmith named Fenton. On one occasion he had robbed a tailor's shop, and word was sent him by the angry Whigs that if he did not return the clothing within a week, he would be hunted and shot. Somewhat alarmed by the threat, Fenton returned the property, and with it sent the following note. I have returned your rags. In a short time I am coming to burn your barns and houses and roast you all like a pack of kittens. One summer night this villain with his band attacked at midnight the dwelling of Mr. Thomas Farr in the vicinity of Imlaystown. The family, consisting of Mr. Farr and wife, both aged, and their daughter barricaded the door with logs of wood. The assailants first attempted to beat in the door with rails, but being unsuccessful fired through a volley of balls, one of which broke the leg of Mr. Farr. Then, forcing an entrance at the back door, they murdered his wife and dispatched him as he lay helpless on the floor. His daughter, though badly wounded, escaped, and the gang, fearing she would alarm the neighborhood, precipitously fled without waiting to plunder. After perpetrating many enormities, Fenton was shot under the following circumstances. Fenton and Burke beat and robbed a young man named Van Motter of his meal as he was going to mill. He escaped and conveyed the information to Light Horse Harry Lee's Legion, then at the Monmouth Courthouse. A party started off in a wagon in pursuit consisting of a sergeant, Van Motter, and two soldiers. The soldiers lay in the bottom of the wagon concealed under straw, while the sergeant disguised as a countryman sat with Van Motter on the seat. To increase the deception, two or three empty barrels were put in the wagon. On passing a low groggery in the pines, Fenton came out with pistol in hand and commanded them to stop. Addressing Van Motter, he said, You rascal! I gave you such a whipping I thought you would not dare show your head. Then, changing the subject, inquired, Where are you going? To the salt works, was the reply. Have you any brandy? demanded the robber. Yes, will you have some? A bottle was given him. He put his foot on the hub of the wagon wheel and was in the act of drinking when the sergeant touched the foot of one of the soldiers, who arose and shot the pine robber through the head. Carelessly throwing the body into the wagon, they drove back furiously to the courthouse, where, on their arrival, they jerked out the corpse by the heels, as though it had been that of some wild animal, with a ferocious exclamation, Here is a cordial for your Tories and wood robbers. Another of the worst of the leaders of these gangs was Fagan. His deeds were so terrible that at last a force of two hundred men and boys was organized, and Fagan was pursued to his death. Sometime after the burial, the infuriated people disinterred the remains, and, after heaping indignities upon it, enveloped it in a tarred cloth and suspended it in chains, with iron bands around it, from a large chestnut tree about a mile from the courthouse on the road to Colt's Neck. There hung the corpse in the midair, rocked to and fro by the winds, a horrible warning to his comrades, and a terror to travelers, until the birds of prey picked the flesh from its bones, and the skeleton fell piecemeal to the ground. Tradition affirms that the skull was afterwards placed against the tree with a pipe in its mouth in derision. Unquote. These horrible examples, taken from many that might be given, 
serve well to show the nature of the struggle of the lonely people in New Jersey and its terrible effect on the evil passions of all who engage in war. At one time, a young Jerseyman named Stephen Edwards, a Tory himself and son of a Tory, enlisted among the forces of the king in New York. Venturing one night to visit the home of his father, where his young wife was staying during the absence of her husband, his presence was surprised by the watchful militia, and, surrounding the house, they demanded that Stephen should come forth and give himself up. As no response to the hail was made, they forced their way into the house, and searched it thoroughly until they came to the room of young Mistress Edwards. Disregarding the pleadings of the old man, they gave the young woman time in which to dress, and then entered, and at once perceived someone was in the bed. Apparently it was a woman, for the face was almost concealed by a huge nightcap. "'Who is this? What have you here?' demanded the leader. "'My serving-woman, with whom I am compelled to share my room,' stammered young Mrs. Edwards. A quick seizure of the nightcap revealed the face of Stephen Edwards, and his papers were also found in his pocket, in which he had been directed by the Board of Loyalists in New York to find out the number of defenders and all he could learn as to the property of the region and the best way of plundering it. The young soldier was declared to be a spy, and despite his protests, was taken to the courthouse and hanged, as a score or more of the pine robbers had been treated before him. Naturally, the affair produced a great excitement in the region, and Captain Joshua Huddy, who had been active in the work, became the object of the bitter hatred of the refugees, the Tories, and the Loyalists in New York. He was one of the leaders of the militia, and was doing his utmost to protect the people from the invaders. So many homes had been destroyed, so many people had been killed, and there was such a veritable reign of terror that Captain Huddy and the other leaders found their hands full. One time Captain Huddy was in charge of the little fort at Tom's River. Less than a score of men were with him, and, for the time, they were trying to protect the salt works in the vicinity. These salt works were one of the few sources of income to the government, and were the special objects of attack on the part of the Tories. A large force of these, together with refugees and pine robbers, attacked Captain Huddy and his followers in the fort, and, after a desperate contest, succeeded in making him a prisoner. They carried him in irons back to the city, and a few days afterward Lippincott, a Tory refugee, with a few others, by orders of William Franklin, took the captain down to the Jersey shore, erected a rude gallows, and hanged the patriot, leaving upon his breast the following placard, Up Goes Huddy for Phil White. Philip White was a pine robber, and had been shot as he tried to escape from the hands of the little party which had striven to take him for the murder of Mr. Russell, one of the patriots of New Jersey. The anger for the people at the death of noble Huddy, for he was a true man, was intense. Washington was appealed to, and he, by the order of Congress and the advice of his generals, wrote Sir Henry Clinton that the men who had hanged Huddy must be given up, or he himself would retaliate by hanging one of the prisoner captains of the British. Sir Henry, without doubt, would gladly have given up the men who had killed Huddy, but Benjamin Franklin's son William, the most bitter Tory of them all, was involved, and so no one was surrendered. 
Washington retaliated and compelled four British captains to draw lots to see who should die as Huddy had. The lot was drawn by young Captain Asgill, only nineteen years of age, the son of an English nobleman. The strongest of pleas were made on his behalf. Lady Asgill, his mother, besought King George to interpose. The French, as allies and friends of the Americans, were besought to add their influence in behalf of the unfortunate young officer. The sentence, however, was kept suspended over his head until the war was practically ended, when he was released and permitted to return to his home in England. In all probability, Washington had not intended any of the time that the young officer should be put to death, but hoped that the suspended sentence would prevent the Tories from committing other crimes of a similar nature. All along the Jersey Shore at this time, little privateers were busy. The character of this part of the warfare may be learned by the following extract from the New Jersey State Gazette. Quote, June 23, 1779. An open boat called the Skunk, mounting two guns and twelve men, belonging to Egg Harbor, sent in there, on Wednesday last, a vessel with a valuable cargo, which makes her nineteenth prize since she was fitted out. Upon one occasion this boat had quite an adventure when commanded by Captain Snell and John Golden. They thought they had discovered a fine prize off Egg Harbor in a large ship wearing the appearance of a merchantman. The boat approached cautiously, and after getting quite near, the little skunk was put in a retreating position, stern to the enemy, and then gave him a gun. A momentary panic ensued. All at once the merchantman was transformed into a British 74, and in another moment she gave the skunk such a broadside that, as Golden expressed it, the water flew around them like 10,000 water spouts. She was cut some in her sails and rigging, but by hard rowing made good her escape with Golden to give the word, Lay low, boys, lay low for your lives. Unquote. From Cape May to Sandy Hook, this was a sample of what was going on. The Americans could not hope to do anything before the British frigates, but their whaleboats, manned sometimes by twenty or more oarsmen, and the fleet little sloops did great damage. Sometimes they were severely punished for their rashness, and sometimes the great guns of the enemy's boats inflicted great damage. But the hardy pioneers, ready with boat or musket, were not daunted, and until the end of the revolution were busy all along the shore. The deeds of one of these men is especially worthy of record. Captain Adam Hyler at one time had been a sailor in the British Navy, but at the outbreak of the war, despite the threat that if he should be taken he would be hanged from the yard-arms, he joined his countrymen in their effort to establish the freedom of the United States. He made his headquarters at New Brunswick, built many whaleboats, and had a staunch band of followers. These men practiced rowing in the long, swift whaleboats until they could drive them over the water almost as silent as the shadow of a moving cloud, and with the speed of the wind. The boats were concealed along the shores of the Raritan River and Amboy Bay and woe betide the luckless vessel, no matter what its size, which ventured to despise these humble foes, or to relax its vigilance even for one night. In case it did, over the waters of the bay these silent whaleboats would be driven by the daring men, and many a time the unsuspecting crew of some vessel would find themselves prisoners and their good ships seized, before they were fully aware that they were being attacked. 
Of course, no great deeds were attempted by Adam Hyler and his bold men, that is, great in the sense of the numbers engaged, but his efforts were a perpetual menace and an unfailing source of annoyance and fear. One or two examples selected from the records of their many bold deeds will best serve to illustrate the character of the warfare waged by the bold followers of the still bolder Captain Hyler. October 7, 1781. On Friday last, Captain Adam Hyler with one gunboat and two whaleboats, within a quarter of a mile of the British guardship at Sandy Hook, attacked five vessels, and after a smart conflict of fifteen minutes carried them. The hands made their escape and took refuge in a small fort, in which were mounted twelve swivel guns, from which they kept up a continual firing, notwithstanding which he boarded them all without the loss of a man. He took from them fifty bushels of wheat, a quantity of cheese, several swivels, a number of fusees, one cask of powder, and some dry goods, after which he set all on fire, save one, on board of which was a woman and four small children, which prevented her from sharing a similar fate. October 15, 1781 On the 13th instant, Captain Adam Hyler, with one gunboat and two whaleboats, boarded one sloop and two schooners, which all the hands except two had left to go ashore on Sandy Hook, and brought them off. Being pursued, one of the schooners running aground by accident was stripped and left, and the other two with prisoners was brought safely to port. Another instance was thus related by one of the prisoners taken. I was on deck on a very pleasant evening with our sentinel fixed. Our vessel was at anchor near Sandy Hook, and the lion man-of-war about a quarter of a mile distant. It was calm and clear, and we were all admiring the beautiful and splendid appearance of the full moon. While we were thus attentively contemplating the serene luminary, we suddenly heard several pistols discharged into the cabin, and turning around perceived at our elbows a number of armed people, fallen as it were from the clouds, who ordered us to surrender in a moment, or we were dead men. Upon this we were turned into the hold, and the hatches barred over us. The firing, however, had alarmed the man-of-war, who hailed us and desired to know what was the matter. As we were not in a situation to answer, Captain Hyler was kind enough to do it for us, telling them through his speaking trumpet that all was well, after which, unfortunately for us, they made no further inquiry. Perhaps the most daring of all the deeds of Captain Hyler was his attempt to take Lippincott, the murderer of Captain Huddy. On inquiry he learned that Lippincott resided in a well-known house in Broad Street, New York. Dressed and equipped like a man-of-war press gang, with his men he left the kills with one boat after dark, and arrived at Whitehall about nine o'clock. Here he left his boat in charge of three men, and then passed to the residence of Lippincott, where he inquired for him and found he was absent and gone to a cockpit. Thus failing in his object, he returned to his boat with his press gang, and left Whitehall, but finding a sloop lying at anchor off the battery, from the West Indies, and laden with rum, he took her, cut her cables, set her sails, and with a northwest wind sailed to Elizabethtown Point, and before daylight had landed from her and secured forty hogsheads of rum. He then burned the sloop to prevent her recapture. Of course, all efforts were not equally successful, but even when a British frigate destroyed the whaleboats, the daring patriots quickly rebuilt them, 
and continued the only efforts they could make against the powerful navy of their foes. Adam Hyler himself did not live to see the peace come for which he fought, but his successors were numerous, and the petty warfare was maintained to the end. End of chapter 27